Welcome to Culture Crux. My name is James Runcorn. Today, I talked to producer Gary about this. We thought it might be a good idea to share my story. Sometimes people see folks in a certain position, like a pastor or whatever, and there are assumptions that can be made. Oh, they've got their life together. Oh, their faith is unshakable. They must have had a great journey getting to this point. But we all have a backstory. We all have a history. We all have things in our past that have shaped our perspective, experiences that cause us to respond to certain things a certain way, especially when it comes to the realm of religion and trusting God or trusting a book like the Bible, trusting a community of faith. And if you've listened to several episodes, you see that we sit down with people who have a completely mixed bag of experiences, everything from no faith at all to losing their faith to everything in between. My story begins with the story of adoption. My biological mother went from the east coast of Canada down to California to arrange a private adoption with some family friends. So my parents took me home when I was three days old, and it took about three years to finalize the adoption, but I was adopted into this family that had a legacy of preachers, pastors, pillars of the faith. My great-great-grandfather, W.E.B., William E. Blackstone, was a missionary in China. He was considered the father of Zionism. He was one of the founders of Biola, which is a massive Christian University in Southern California. He wrote something called the Blackstone Memorial, which had, I think, around 400 or so signatures from prominent people in the United States, including Rockefeller and J.P. Morgan, and this was all in support of Israel. And he presented that document, the Blackstone Memorial, to the President of the United States to gather support for Israel. His son was a missionary in China, my great-great-grandfather, I'm sorry, my great-grandfather, and then his son, uh, James H. Blackstone, my grandpa, was born in Nanking, China, to missionary parents, and he became a, a pastor. He was involved with the Presbyterian Church for a number of years, and then he separated from the Presbyterian Church due to theological issues, and he pastored a, a community church in Carlsbad, California. So this is the family that I was adopted into. And as a young child, I believed that I would go out on the mission field too. I thought, ah, maybe I'll go to China, just like my great-great-grandfather, my great-grandfather, my grandfather. I'll carry on this legacy of sharing the gospel in Asia. And then when I was involved with youth group, so I went to church every Wednesday evening to Awana, went to church every Sunday or Saturday when my parents were at choir practice, went to church every Sunday morning, all the services. My faith was given to me, spoon-fed to me. All I knew was everything that my grandparents and my parents taught me and the Sunday school teachers taught me. As a matter of fact, when I was three years old, just three, we were at my grandpa's church and I remember very clearly the Sunday school room where the teacher held up the picture of Jesus knocking at the door and she said, who wants to open the door of their heart and let Jesus in? And I raised my hand, little three-year-old child, just responding to the gospel. And I prayed the prayer, Jesus come into my heart, be my Lord. I was so excited. In between services, I remember going to my grandpa 
at the, the donut, uh, they had donut tables and coffee. And I pulled on his, his robe and I said, Grandpa, I just asked Jesus into my heart. And he looked down at me and I, I'm, I'm sure that he meant well. But he looked at me and said, you don't understand, you're too young. It's not legitimate. First of all, I didn't know what the word legitimate meant <laughs> at three, but I knew that I had asked Jesus in my heart. And if I was too young to understand, well, why did I even pray that prayer? So I spent a number of years after that trying to have a legitimate experience with Jesus. I re-prayed and re-asked Jesus, and multiple times I was walking this this line of just completely uh, being unsure of my faith. But I continued on in church, and I was engaged in the youth group uh, when I was in high school. And people seemed to look at me like I had some kind of leadership quality. I ended up as a sophomore in high school becoming the president of the youth group. But at that same time, my dad, so I was 14, almost 15, 1989, my dad, who was six foot seven, and he sang bass in the choir, he began to tell my mom and myself, now realize we were very poor, extremely poor, but he began to tell us that he met his guardian angel. And he said that his angel told him that we would financially be secure in the near future. And he told us a bunch of stuff. And it seemed kind of odd because we went to a very conservative church. People hardly closed their eyes when they sang during worship. Nobody raised their hands or anything. It was very, very conservative. So for him to say that he met his angel sounded very odd. But at the same time in scripture, you have encounters with angels. So it wasn't something outside the realm of theology that I'd been taught. Then over time, several days, he began to change his voice as the angel supposedly was talking through him. And that got a little bit weird. But my mom and I never met an angel, but he kept telling us, oh, you'll meet your angel, don't worry. And then his voice got even deeper and more scary when he said God was talking through him. And over, I guess it was the end of about the second week, third week maybe of all this, he began to pray every night in tongues. And again, picture a very conservative family, very conservative church. Tongues, praying in tongues was something completely foreign to us. And our house was very small. And again, with that booming voice, I remember covering my head up with the pillow, trying to drown out his loud, booming voice, praying in tongues all night long. And this went on for several nights. And I came home one day from a friend's house and I found out that my dad had been taken away. And on the table was a phone book that had been ripped. Now, my dad wasn't a violent man. As a matter of fact, as a young man, he was a, a pacifist during the Vietnam uh, War draft. He, he had to go through this process of, of uh, them investigating his claims as to whether or not he was a real pacifist. And they put him through the ringer on that. But he was not a violent man. But this phone book was torn on the table. And my mom was a wreck. And she said that she had called for help because he was completely out of his mind. It took several police officers to handcuff him to a gurney. They took him to the hospital and he was in the psychiatric uh, ward of that hospital for a couple of weeks as they balanced out his chemicals. So the end result was he just, he had a, a massive nervous breakdown and a chemical imbalance. 
And so these voices in his head were all, it was just delusion. That was hard enough for me because everything that he talked about was based on scripture and this encounter with angels, this encounter with God. And that shook my faith quite a bit when I was getting ready to turn 15. But then later that year in October, my mom died from kidney failure. So my dad was mentally disabled the rest of his life and I lost my mom. So I was, I was on my own at the age of 15. And I began to drown my pain in substances, physical relationships with girls in the youth group. When word got to the youth pastor and other leaders in the church, they pulled me into a little conference and said I was not welcome to come back to church until I'd gone through a, a, a bunch of counseling. All I wanted on the inside was to be there. That's, that's the only family I had at that point was the youth group, my youth pastor. But I realized I'd done something wrong, but that was the only question. I mean, that was the only option apparently was, was to kick me out. They didn't, I guess that particular church in the late eighties was not equipped to gently restore people, but being out of my community of faith and having the foundation of everything that I was taught to believe shaken because of my father's mental breakdown, I kind of went on a whirlwind uh, downward spiral. I didn't know what was true. I didn't want to just believe what I'd been spoon-fed because children all across the globe have been spoon-fed the religious beliefs and systems of their parents. So I started searching out truth. I wanted something that I could cling to, that I could anchor myself on, and I wanted it to be true. So I checked out different religious systems. I checked out uh, scientific systems. I checked out Eastern mysticism. I checked out several different things, and everything kept pointing me back to Jesus. Jesus was a real person in history. There's archaeological evidence for quite a bit of things that the Bible talks about, and those new discoveries are constantly being made even to this day. There are secular writers of the day who mentioned Jesus and talked about him. And then I think on a previous podcast, maybe the one where I was talking to Aiden, the whole idea of the disciples, they were, when Jesus was alive, willing to go to death with him. That's what they said. But when push came to shove and Jesus was arrested, they were out of there. They, the self-preservation, the you know, fight or flight, protect yourself. They didn't want to really die. And then Jesus was crucified. And their faith, their foundation was shattered. They had nothing left to stand on. Everything that Jesus said to them was now, was it discredited because he was, he was arrested? He wasn't this Messiah that they were hoping for. He, he didn't have a revolt. He didn't lead the people of Israel into some new, new world, in a sense. He was dead. But then, three days later, he appears to them in the flesh not a spirit, not a manifestation, not a hallucination. Jesus appears in the flesh. That conquering of death validated every claim Jesus made. 
and it gave new life to the disciples' faith. They didn't fear death anymore. They didn't fear death because Jesus was there in the flesh. He showed them that he had victory over death, over life and death. They'd seen him perform numerous miracles. But now there he was, resurrected in their presence. And this wasn't just an appearance to a couple of people where myth and legend could have been born. He appeared to over 500 at once, and the Apostle Paul talks about that. He says, he says to the people that he's writing to, he appeared to more than 500, and, and there were people in that congregation who were eyewitnesses to that event. That could have been discredited if no one had really seen the resurrected Jesus. So if Jesus made these incredible claims that he's the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through him. And he's the one that's the light of the world. If he conquered death, that's something that I needed to listen to and I needed to pay attention to. Now, it took a number of years for me to, I guess, walk down that pathway of sanctification. There was some repentance that needed to happen. And to be honest, there have been different doubts that I've experienced throughout the years, but a doubt in and of itself is not a sin. In fact, in Jude, there's only one chapter in Jude, so I say Jude 1, 22, but in, in Jude verse 22, he writes, be merciful to those who doubt. People who have doubts, that, that isn't something that's going to stumble or trip up God. Out of the entire course of human history, People have had doubts, but when faced with the absolute truth that God gives us, those doubts can all be met with truth and a firm foundation to put those doubts aside. And one can shift their confidence into the hope that's given through Jesus. I was thinking about 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and the reason that we want to share our faith with others. Part of this this program is to help equip you, the body of Christ, to engage the people around you. And you don't have to have years and years of school to do that. You've got the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And the greatest apologetic for a creator is what God has done in your own life. Because there was a point in my life where I embraced sin. I ran to sin. Sin was something that I gravitated towards. But with Christ truly seated at the on the throne of my heart, I respond to sin differently now. I'm a changed person. I'm not the same person that I was now that I'm submitting my heart, my mind, my will, and my life to God. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. I'm convinced that John 3.16 is an eternal true statement. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. If you're listening and you don't believe and you think that you've done something so wretched that it, it, it puts God's love to shame or his, his love can't break through that barrier, the truth is you cannot out-sin the grace of God. He has agape love for you. That's unconditional love. It means when you were God's enemy, that's when he sent Christ to pay the price for your sin in full 
so that you can have a renewed, reconciled relationship with the Holy God. And in 2 Corinthians 5, later on in verse 17, Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. You're a new creation. You don't have to worry about your own merit, your own abilities. You're now living your life with Jesus sitting at the throne of your heart. He guides your, he guides your way. He opens the doors for you. Yeah, he allows you to make choices along the way. He doesn't control you like a puppet master, but in submission to his lordship and making yourself available when he has people come across your path who need to hear a word of encouragement, who need to see Christ's love in action through your response to them. Maybe, maybe you feel compelled to pray for someone and you're scared. I would encourage you, perfect love casts out fear. Fear has no place in your life because a perfect holy God who has perfect love for you has given you the power to not be captive to fear. So if in a moment you feel that prompting to say something encouraging to a person who needs a word of encouragement or needs a prayer or needs a word of hope, be faithful and respond because that's God calling you to do that in that moment, to be faithful in that moment. If you've listened to any of these shows, you, you see I don't have the perfect answer for everybody. I'm not the one who, who can say, well, now that I've heard your story, let me give you the step-by-step uh, -step answer to everything you've experienced. No, of course Jesus is the answer, but I'm going to speak a little bit of words of truth into their life, and I'm going to know confidently in prayer that God has got the entire journey of, their, uh, of this person sitting across from me, their, their entire journey safe in his hands. I have to be faithful in the moment though. I have to be faithful to respond to his prompting. And I'd encourage you to do the same. Mm -hmm.